special for you. Ready? Uno, two, three, quattro. When I was a boy, just about the eighth grade, Mama used to say, don't stay out late with the bad boys. Always shoot the pool, Giuseppe going to flunk a school. Boy, it make me sick, all the thing I gotta do. Kicks, I always got to follow rules Boy, it making me sick Just to make the lousy bucks Got to feel like a fool And the mama used to say all the time What's the matter to you? Hey, got no respect What do you think you do? Why you look so sad? It's not so bad It's a nicer place I shut up your face That's my mama, can I remember? Big accordion solo Devin Robertson our guy on the other side of the glass. Your mama ever say to you, ah, shut up of your face. Not quite in those words, but <laughs> in spirit, if nothing else. I don't think we're even allowed. I mean, we're allowed to, but it's frowned upon to use such language in 2024. Shut up of your face. Yeah, it's a, it's a little uh, blunt. It's very blunt. Yeah. And yet, just to show you, what life was like well before you were born, young man. That right there went to number one on the music charts back in 1981. 43 years ago today, Shut Up of Your Face. That's the name of the song. I don't make any of these things up. It went to number one on the UK singles chart. Joe Dolce, and it probably won't surprise you that it's a one-hit wonder. There's no way that's true. How do you top that? Yeah, honestly, <laughs> once you—if I'm Joe Dolce, I finish that song, and I'm like, I'm out. It's all you need. That's all you need. It also—it didn't just go number one in the UK. It went number one in eleven countries overall, with thirty-five different foreign language cover versions. It sold four million copies. What's the matter, you? Hey, why you look? We might just save that part to use it when we need it as appropriate on this show. Ah, shut up of your face. This brought back so many memories for me. Not only was I right at the right age, an impressionable youngster, to hear a song like that on the radio, I'm like, oh my gosh. He said, shut up of your face. And we all learned the chorus and we'd all be singing it in the schoolyard. Ah, shut up of your face. But I heard it on this very radio station, 570 Chime, when it played music away back then. And so when I saw this note on my This Day in Music History, trying to determine the song I was going to play today, this one from 1981 sent me scurrying into our boardroom here at the radio station. I have shared the pictures on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash the Mike Farwell Show. We have two small display cases of radio memorabilia, all kinds of old equipment. I mean, I could just go on and on. Check out the pictures if you so desire. But there is also a framed album or single of this song, vinyl, the record of Joe Dolce's 1981 number one hit, Shut Up Your Face, in our display case in the boardroom. And all I can picture is the legendary George Michaels, on 570 Chime, 43 years ago today, playing that song. Because I know he did, and you know he did. 
and we had a lot of fun with it then. And I hope you enjoyed this trip down memory lane here this morning as we look back on 1981 when Joe Dolce's Shut Up Your Face went number one in 11 different countries. All right. I know what you're waiting for today. I know because you started messaging me last night, and I got to be honest, Mark called the show yesterday. He said, are you going to stay up for it? Because you know what's going to happen tonight. And I was messaging with another buddy, coincidentally named Mark, last night, and I said, I'm feeling more than one. He was feeling another Austin Matthews hat trick. I was definitely feeling a multi-goal game. Truth be told, because I am a man of a certain age, I tapped out so early last night. I thought, what am I going to wait up for for the start of the game? Just waiting for the goal, which I knew would occur, but I'm like, I'm just going to call it. I was in bed well before 10 o'clock last night. However, on the morning after the night before, we so often get the opportunity for AM on AM in the AM. Far side for Matthews. Back to the blue line again. Got it back from Lilligren. Shot it from the And what do you do for an encore when you score number 5-0? Here's Marner working with a nifty little pass on the right wing and a shot, big rebound. Another shot by Marner. Matthew scores! Right in front of the net, Marner got it there. It was in the air and Matthews knocks it out of the air. Never mind 50. Let's have 51. AM on AM in the AM times two. Leafs win. The Leafs win. And Austin Matthews now has 51 goals in 54 games. He's on pace for 76. We know he's going over 70 this year, right? For the first time in I don't know how long, somebody is going to score 70-plus in the National Hockey League. What a night for Austin Matthews. What a night for the Toronto Maple Leafs. Little AM on the AM in the AM for you. One more quick note on on a very serious note I wanted to touch on, and we will get to during the show as time permits. We've got a super busy show for you today. I'm really looking forward to all of it. But one of the things we're going to address is following a phone call that we got during the show yesterday about the question that Pierre Poiliev was asked while at his stop in Kitchener around the use of female washrooms, the participation in female sports, and Pierre Polyev made it clear that only biological females should be using female washrooms and playing female sports. And our caller, who was quite vexed by all of this, suggested that this is just the typical trap. It comes out every time there's an election. You want to get the conservatives stuck in their social conservative ways. Well, I'm here to tell you this morning, it was no trap. Dare I say it was as close to a planted question as one could ever hope for as a party leader. And I have the audio to prove it. So we will get to that during the show today. I promise you that. Right now, let's get to your Farwell Show 5 for this Thursday morning, the 22nd of February. Number one, Canadians are looking for discounts. Does this sound like you? According to new research from Dalhousie University, 30% of us now choose our grocery store based exclusively on in-store discounts 
and promotions. And once we're in the store, almost 60% of us look for discounted food products with a preference for items nearing their expiry date or clearance items. Number two, the African, Caribbean, and Black Network of Waterloo Region has issued a statement condemning a police shooting on Brybeck Crescent on Monday night. The network says the shooting victim was, quote, a black man in distress due to a mental health crisis. Number three on your Farwell Show 5 this morning, sentencing today for a man who killed four members of a Muslim family in London. 23-year-old Nathaniel Veltman has been found guilty of four counts of first-degree murder and one count of attempted murder for running down the Afsal family with his truck back in June of 2021. Number four, a new report says wait times at Ontario walk-in clinics have more than doubled in the past year, going from 25 minutes in 2022 to 59 minutes in 2023. Meantime, more than 2 million Ontarians do not have a family doctor. And number five on your Farwell Show, five this morning, Air Canada is introducing what it calls a luxury bus service that will connect travelers from Hamilton and Waterloo to Toronto's Pearson International Airport. The carrier announced a partnership with the Landline Company that will allow customers to book a single itinerary combining, quote, a luxury motor coach service with its flights for a seamless, convenient, and more sustainable journey. The service will begin operating as a pilot project in May of 2024. It is 9.14. Is the Canadian dream dead? We explore that question next on the Mike Farwell Show. You're listening to City News 570. Is the Canadian dream broken? New research out of the University of Toronto suggests perhaps one of the researchers that worked on the report is Dr. Rupa Banerjee, Canada Research Chair in Economic Inclusion, Employment and Entrepreneurship and an Associate Professor of Human Resource Management and Organizational Behavior at U of T. Rupa joins the show this morning. Good morning, Rupa. Good morning. What did you learn in preparing this report? Well, what I was really interested in studying to begin with was how the more recent uh, cohorts of second-generation immigrants, and when I say second-generation immigrants, what I mean is the children of immigrants who are actually born in Canada, so in fact they're Canadians, um, how they're faring in terms of their education and, and their labor market outcomes. Um, for those who are arriving later on, we have a lot of research from a while back for immigrants, kids who maybe were born in the 70s, the 60s and 70s, but we really don't have a lot of more recent research to see how the younger cohorts are now faring. So that's what kind of prompted this research. And what we found uh, was actually really startling. So first of all, we expected to see that the second generation was doing all right, because that's kind of been the traditional story. Um, And uh, overall, we did find that in terms of education, when you look at the second generation racialized population, um, they are increasingly educated over the cohorts. And they're way more educated than the sort of mainstream uh, long-term Canadian who's been here for many, many generations. However, when you drill down into various ethno-racial groups, there are really stark differences between the racialized groups in terms of their outcomes. So that's the part that really surprised us in a certain way. Um, 
I mean, now that I've been presenting it to a lot of community groups, they say they're not surprised. So what we find is that while Chinese and, and South Asian second generation um, continue to do fairly well in terms of education, their earnings are re- relatively not doing as well. And in particular, the black population and the Latin American second generation population are really um, deteriorating in their uh, labor market outcomes. So their earnings are dropping over time. Uh, and that's really concerning because, you know, um, how the second generation fares is kind of a sign of how Canada is doing overall, since we are a, c- a country of, of immigrants. No question about it, which leads into what I was curious about, and that is if a study like this would suggest that Canada becomes a less desirable place for people to emigrate to. Absolutely. I mean, that's the biggest concern, right? We already hear of the fact that a lot of highly qualified and skilled immigrants are actually turning back. So folks who find that the Canadian dream isn't what they thought it would be uh, are more likely to actually leave. And when you find that you know, a lot of immigrants come and they are willing to sacrifice their own careers, their own lives, if their children will succeed. And if there's an idea that the children are not doing as well, then I think they'll think twice about whether this is a place that they want to settle. And I think, moreover, there's a real uh, worrying implication for what this means for social cohesion in Canada. If you have racialized lines of inequality that not only just... Uh, remain, but actually get worse over the cohorts of generations, then that's something that's really, really worrying and something we need to take action about. And again, you're very good at this. Have you done a lot of interviews? <laughs> because I was just, I was leading right in that or thinking along those same lines, taking <laughs> action. What does that, what does that look like? What, what could or should this report prompt us to do? I mean, it's a really complicated issue, right? So there are factors at various levels. So at the individual and family level, there, uh, you know, we, I just had an event yesterday at Toronto Metropolitan University on this, and we had a panel with lots of community experts, and they talked about this idea of pervasive discrimination and racism and how it has a long-term, um, you know, uh, kind of negative effect on the psyche of young people. So it's not just that discrimination hurts. But it has a cumulative effect over time where people sometimes then become internalized that racism and have a sense of self-hate and actually stop themselves from being as successful as they could. So some of these uh, populations, some of these communities, particularly when we have increased ethno-racial communities living in neighborhoods that are segregated, uh, there may be you know, a certain level of individual lack of you know, confidence and ambition to try and succeed. That's at the individual level. We can't look at that separately from the community level. So what we find is that in communities where there are less resources, fewer public libraries, public schools are not as well funded. We don't have as many um, after-school activities. All of those kinds of things matter. And so uh, when kids find that they don't have those available to them, that has a very detrimental effect on their future well-being and their future success. And then at the, at the policy level, we have to take the issue of racism, and in particular anti-black racism, seriously. Because the one group we find that despite the fact that, you know, they are still more educated than the mainstream population, 
in many cases, their earnings are dropping over the cohort. So what I mean by that is, uh, you know, black second generation from the 70s versus the 80s versus bo- those born in the 90s, uh, their earnings as they get out of school and enter the labor market is actually getting relatively worse. And that's, you know, something that we have to take really seriously to show that, you know, we don't live in a post-racial society, that racism is real, and we need to actually deal with this, um, you know, talk about it, bring it out into the open and actually uh, deal with it. I'm glad you're being a catalyst for that very conversation today. It's really interesting research, and I'm grateful for your time. Thank you very much for being here. Thanks so much, Mike. Dr. Rupa Banerjee is the Canada Research Chair in Economic Inclusion, Employment, and Entrepreneurship of Canada's Immigrants, also an Associate Professor of Human Resource Management and Organizational Behavior at Toronto Metropolitan University. My apologies for misspeaking before and saying U of T. Uh, Rupa is with Toronto Metropolitan University. And research that she recently co-authored suggests that the Canadian dream is broken. Second-generation Canadians not having the same success despite attaining higher education as their parents did when they first immigrated here. This is the Mike Farwell Show on City News 570. It feels a little bit like deja vu all over again. 24 hours ago, right around this time, we were speaking with the leader of the federal conservatives, Pierre Polyev. Well, this morning, right after this update from the City News Centre, we're going to speak with the co-leader of the federal Green Party. Elizabeth May joins us next on the Mike Farwell Show. This is City News 570. It's been a good week, albeit a short four-day work week, but a good week for us getting some political party leaders onto the program. Yesterday, it was Conservative Party leader Pierre Poiliev. This morning, it's the co-leader of the Federal Greens, Elizabeth May, who joins us on the program. Ms. May, good morning. Good morning, Mike. Great to be back with you again. Thank you. It's great to have you on the show, and thank you for the time. I, I've got to. I got to think that being in this part of Southern Ontario uh, must be rather enthusiastic or enthusiasm building for you. Because when I look across the country, Ms. May, I, I see Mike Schreiner, the leader of the Provincial Greens in Guelph, Ashlyn Clancy just elected here in Kitchener Centre as a member provincially, and then, of course, Mike Morris federally here in Kitchener Centre. That's three Green Party, that's a great Green Party presence right in this part of Ontario. And it, it's really a lot of your members across the country. Yeah, and I couldn't be more... I was going to say proud, but I want to say honored to serve with Mike Morris in Parliament. He is an absolute dynamo, and he really champions solutions. And just like Mike Schreiner and Ashlyn Clancy, they were recently in town to talk about solutions to the housing crisis. You know, we like to focus on solutions, but you're right. Oh, I love coming back to Kitchener. I had more fun. I think everybody had fun in Ashlyn Clancy's campaign. Um, her husband makes great pizza, and Ashlyn said the slogan in the campaign office was, come for the food, 
stay for the politics. And that's what it felt like. It was a community of really dedicated local volunteers. And wow, what a landslide. Pierre Polyev, while he was here in Kitchener yesterday, said uh, nothing that he hasn't said before acts the tax, meaning the carbon tax. He has pledged to remove it should he form the next government. Is the carbon tax good environmental policy, Ms. May? Yes, it is. And it's it's not enough. It's not necessarily... Right now we have a patchwork. People in British Columbia get their, you know, basically our carbon rebate in British Columbia for many years has been cut to our provincial income tax. Residents in Ontario get a check in the mail. The point of a carbon pricing scheme is to make make sure that pollution isn't free. It's not complicated. But, the, you know, when you see gas prices soar, it's because the fossil fuel giants are fiddling with the prices. And people will feel a pain at the pumps much more from what has traditionally happened. And I think every every listener knows that you, when you see all the, all the sticker prices going up all at once all over the place and there's a tiny change in carbon pricing that hasn't even taken effect in 2024 well you know right before christmas or right before summer holidays um that's what's going to happen at the the gas stations we need much more aggressive carbon policy we're we're now realizing that the forest fires of the summer haven't gone out they're still burning and smoldering under the snow across canada alberta just declared that it's wildfire season has already started. So we have to do much, much more to ensure our kids have a, a safe and secure world. And that's, that's got to be job one for regardless of what party you're in. What does much more look like in your eyes? It means that we have to make sure our electricity grid is modernized. We have a, we have a situation in Canada where our electricity grid is more balkanized between provinces than, say, between nation states in Europe, right? So we, we have to do much more to ensure that we have a smart grid that works east-west as well as north-south. We have to do much more to stop subsidizing uh, the, the big fossil fuel giants. And, again, Mike Morris with the solutions, he's put forward a, a motion to extend what the government now puts in place on banks and insurance companies in an excess profits tax should apply to the big fossil fuel giants that aren't based in Canada. They call themselves Canadian companies, but they're housed elsewhere and they're headquartered elsewhere. And they're making enormous profits, essentially war profiteering, since Putin invaded Ukraine and fossil fuel prices went through the roof. So there's a lot we can and should do. uh, Modernizing our homes to make sure we're not heating the outdoors in the winter and cooling the outdoors in the summer. These are things that save us money as homeowners and, and, and consumers. They're all sensible things, uh, but they need to be applied consistent, sorry, consistently. And my, my beef with, with Justin Trudeau is he, he, he says one thing one day and nothing the next day. So he's a climate champion one day and the next day he buys a pipeline. It, and, and by the way, that pipeline is costing Canadians $35 billion, quite dwarfing anything that the government is doing on financing uh, energy efficiency improvements and renewables. The number of international student visas issued in the country has become a big issue, Ms. May, and it's particularly yeah. important here in our community where it's become a bit of a lightning rod for controversy, to be honest. The cap that's been 
introduced, albeit temporary. Do you support mm-hmm. that cap on the number of international student visas being issued? Yes, it's a ve- it's basically a slowdown process. I mean, there'll still be more students with inter- international students next year than last year, but there's the the met- the effort is to slow it down. And again. I'm sorry, I keep talking about Mike, but Mike Morris has done great work in Parliament on this, too, with M98, which is an international student's motion he put together. The government has now adopted four of the recommendations from Mike's motion, and it includes making sure Mike's motion called for making sure that international students come to Canada with access to more money, that they can prove they have $20,000 successful to them, They're, that we are able to, re- to reduce the number of work hours. International students need to have time for studying, so uh, reimposing the 20-hour-per-week limit on hours, making sure that we, and back to another big really uh, cross-country nightmare is accessibility and affordable housing. So you have to make sure that the institutions that are bringing international students here have housing for them. And by the way, I mean, international students, why do we have so many international students? It's a cash cow. Um, it's, in, in this year, it's projected that the Canadian economy will get $42 billion from international students. So we, we don't want to blame uh, these brilliant young people who come to Canada to study. It's, it's great for us not to, you know, to be able to attract that talent and hopefully keep them in Canada. Uh, but we need to actually plan for uh, and accommodate and set those international students up for success. And we also need to make sure that we're not creating, um, I mean, some of the nasty sniping between community college presidents, I won't repeat here, but what on earth? We should be properly, as a nation, investing in education so that our educational institutions, colleges, and universities aren't so strapped for cash that they are, you know, bringing in international students because they'll pay more. And that we're also going hat in hand for uh, corporate donations and not putting money where we should in tenure-track positions to ensure the high quality of education in Canada is protected. And by the way, Green's favor that we should eliminate tuition altogether many modern European nations haven't. It. it attracts the talent that drives the economy into the future by making sure that young people can afford a university education, regardless of background and family connections, so that they don't end up burdened. And it's not just the kids who end up burdened by student debt. A lot of parents end up burdened by the fact that their kids are carrying enormous levels of debt at the point in their life when they should be debt-free and able to find work and start saving. While he was here yesterday, Mr. Polyev made headlines with his comments about transgender women who should not be allowed to use female bathrooms and not be allowed to participate in female sports. He wanted female spaces only, Uh, although he admitted that the federal government may not have much reach when it comes to legislation in that regard. That notwithstanding, what's your reaction to the conservative leader's comments? Oh, Pierre, I've known, I've known this young man for a long, long time, and I've known many versions of Pierre Polyev. This is the worst. I mean, I've known Pierre since he was, well, he was, let's say, I mean, I, he was elected when he was uh, very young. He was 24. So when I say I've known many versions, I say that as someone who's known him a long time. This is vile. You don't say these things. What we see happening in other jurisdictions is when people want 
to foment anti-trans hate and, and, and fear. I mean, why shouldn't we have gender-neutral bathrooms? I mean, as a woman, I mean, I don't know why Pierre probably ever suddenly fixated on women's washrooms, but I, I can. Uh, there's no issue for the women I know that it's actually it actually frees up some women's washrooms when you might want to find one at, in an intermission at any show you've ever been to. And Mike, I know you're not a woman, but if you've ever been in intermissions, you know, in any theater, any symphony orchestra event, the women's washroom lineup is for miles. Why not have gender neutral bathrooms? there's no harm there's there's no downside you still have the choice if you really you can go find a ladies room if you really want one i can't understand why politicians from blaine higgs in new brunswick who got this horrible uh issue rolling out of new brunswick and then to scott mullen saskatchewan and now pierre probably of federally leave our trans kids support our trans kids this is about inclusion and safety and acceptance and and pretending it's an issue when we have real crises in healthcare and housing and real crises in the climate crisis women's washrooms here it's not a thing give your head a shake ms may we always appreciate the chance to chat with you thanks for making time for the show well, thank you so much, Mike, and thanks, Kitchener Stender. Yay! Excellent. <laughs> go, go, Green. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Elizabeth May, co leader of the Federal Green Party, joining us on the Mike Farwell Show this morning. This is City News 570. When you see all the sticker prices going up all at once, all over the place, and there's a tiny change in carbon pricing that hasn't even taken effect in 2024, well, you know, right before Christmas or right before summer holidays, that's what's going to happen at the the gas stations. We need much more aggressive carbon policy. Elizabeth May, co-leader of the Federal Green Party, joining us on the program 24 hours after Conservative Party leader Pierre Polyev joined us on the show. I guess that's two down, two to go. Paging Messieurs Singh and Trudeau were all ears. And our phone lines are always open, by the way. Always happy to hear from our party leaders and our other elected representatives. Let's go to the phones and hear from you. Brett, good morning. Mike, happy Thursday. How you doing? Happy Thursday to you too. I'm all right. How are you? Well, I can't complain. Just got the morning feeding done for the pigs. So that boy. Good. Yeah. <laughs> I, I just got to wonder, like, with these green people, do they think if they plant enough trees, they'll get a money tree at some point in time? Oh, man. For- Could you imagine if we could? Wouldn't that be cool? I would love it. But, <laughs> you know, you just do the quick math, Mike. We got $1.2 trillion of federal government debt right now, over $400 billion for the province of Ontario. And if you just take the federal debt, you know, and, and if it would all come due at today's interest rates, that's $72 billion a year just to cover the interest on what the federal government's already spent. So the idea of implementing all these programs that she's talking about, basically no tuition universities, we got people graduating university right now, and if they get a job making sixty dollars to $100,000 a year, they're still not able to make ends meet. So I don't know where her math comes out, but uh, it just is not really feasible it's not reasonable, responsible, or realistic to expect more spending to fix the problems of today. Why do you got to be so sensible, Brett? Like, why you got to hurt me this way? Well, I mean, Mike, it would be great if we just had that type of sensibility in leadership and uh, stay focused on we know what works. We're a natural resource-rich country. 
We can develop it in sustainable ways. We've got industry on board for that. But to come out against all that and want to spend all this money, it's just going to bankrupt the next generation. Brett, I appreciate the call. I share that concern that fiscal concern, I really do. And it's interesting that Brett talks about somebody getting a post-secondary education, coming out, earning sixty dollars to $100,000 a year and not being able to make ends meet. It ties right into the conversation we had at 9.15 or just after 9.15 this morning around second-generation Canadians not having the same experience as their parents who probably immigrated to Canada for a better life for their kids. They're higher, they have a, a higher education, and yet their prospects and their earnings are diminished. I think that's pretty telling. And that was research out of Toronto Metropolitan University. Uh, quickly to Paul. I got about 90 seconds, Paul. Hey, how are you doing? Good. The, uh, the, my main takeaway from uh, Elizabeth May was anybody else's opinion is not important. It's only her opinion that is important. Pierre isn't entitled to have an opinion on uh, on anything, if, uh, if you would listen to her. But my question is, whereabouts is she calling from today? Uh, she, she, she's here in the region. I think she's in Kitchener today. I don't know. I didn't exact ask exactly where, but oh. she's in in these here parts. Oh, okay. I just figured if she was out, if she's out in BC, up uh, awfully early in the morning for her. Well, no, nope. she's right here in town. Yeah, she seemed fairly uh, awake and lucid. The um, I would have expected her to either be very tired or very drunk by this time of the day. Why would you say such a thing? <laughs> because I watch politics a lot. Okay. I I don't understand the connection, and I don't know what difference it makes where Elizabeth May currently is when she phones into the show for a conversation and to share some of her views as one of our party leaders in this country. But you can take away from it what you wish to take away from it. The conversation, that is. And we have many more still to come on this Thursday episode of the Mike Farwell Show. Stay with us on City News 570. A lively start to our show yet again. Thanks, I believe, in large part to the participation of another one of our federal party leaders here in Canada. Yesterday, it was Pierre Polyev. This morning, it's Elizabeth May. I can't wait for the next one. And I can't wait for the other conversations we have in store for you today, including one about an agency in Kitchener that helps to provide affordable housing and individualized supports for those suffering from mental illness. We'll have that conversation just after the 11 a.m. news, so about an hour from now. Right now, we're going to get you to the City News Center for an update, and then the conversation that's guaranteed to make Steve happy. Oh, Steve was up one side of me and down the other yesterday because he didn't think we were spending any time talking about this waste by our provincial government. Well, the report just came out yesterday, and it says our hospitals are on their deathbed. We follow up the report. Sorry we weren't there yesterday, but we're right here today. The Ontario Health Coalition joins us next to tell us why our hospitals are on their deathbed. This is the Mike Farwell Show on City News 570.
A new report from the Ontario Health Coalition entitled Robbing from the Public to Build the Private, the Ford Government's Hospital Privatization Scheme. And as reported by the City News Centre yesterday, our hospitals, says the OHC, the Ontario Health Coalition, are on their deathbed. Natalie Mira is the Executive Director of the Ontario Health Coalition and joins us for a conversation. Natalie, good morning. Good morning. What is it that you are seeing in our healthcare system today that suggests that the public is being robbed to build the private? Well, we spent the last year collecting um, data from public hospitals across the province. And what we found was that in every hospital, um, there are operating rooms that are closed the majority of the time. So after they might close down in the late afternoon, 3 p.m., 4 p.m., they're closed in the late afternoons, evenings, overnights, and weekends. Um, and hospital funding this year, operating funding, has um, is running at real dollar cuts. So the increase that they got from the Ford government is half of 1%, um, so l- far less than the rate of inflation, what economists call real dollar cuts. It means they can't keep up with even the existing services, let alone population growth and aging pressures, um, uh, in the, in, in the, at this point. Um, and, and yet they have operating rooms sitting idle all over the place. And then in a number of places, there are operating rooms that are closed down permanently because they don't have the funding to run them. They're used as storage closets and so on. I mean, it's just ludicrous. While people are waiting for needed surgeries, at the same time, the provincial government has given a 212% increase in funding to the private for-profit clinics to build new operating rooms, uh, only for-profit, um, and a 278% increase to a private hospital. There are only two private hospitals left in Ontario because they're outlawed. Um, and so that... Uh, you know, stands in stark contrast to how they're treating the public hospitals. I mean, really, they're robbing from the public hospitals to shift resources to private for-profit entities to rebuild what we already have. So what would that $212 million be able to do in our existing health care system? Yeah, so it's 212% increase. Oh, pardon me. And yes, it amounts, sorry. No, 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 it's okay. It amounts to hundreds of millions of dollars, both between how they're funding the private clinics and hospitals and um, the private for-profit staffing agencies. So if it was even just $100 million, that would buy 200,000 cataract surgeries in a public hospital. I mean, it's it would wipe out the wait list entirely for cataract surgeries. It's It's just ridiculous. And they're paying a higher cost per surgery in the private clinics. It's 21% higher uh, across the board. And in some private clinics, it's it's up to 56% higher cost. In the private hospital, where they've given the biggest funding increase, and that's the private hospital that the former health minister under the Ford government has gone to lobby for, um, they are paying double the cost per surgery uh, to to do them in in that private hospital. I mean, it's just... You can't argue with the figures. These are all government figures. You can't. They're in the contracts. We did freedom of information requests. We got data from the public hospitals. I mean, it's irrefutable data, but the picture that it paints is that they're paying more 
to privatize our public health system and they're running our public hospitals into the ground. I mean, they've forced the majority of hospitals now in Ontario are in deficit and they have to cut services. It's, it's just in this kind of healthcare crisis, they're paying three times the rate for nurses to for-profit staffing agencies while they imposed wage caps and then they appealed when the, when the court struck that down, um, on the public hospitals. Um, and only the public nonprofit healthcare entities had the wage caps, not the for-profits. I mean, across the board, you can see the treatment of the public nonprofit is um, much worse than the treatment of the private for-profit. I heard it argued on another radio station just yesterday, Natalie, that if we were to include more private care in our public system here in Ontario, somebody that can afford the private care would access it, thus opening up space in the public system. Is that not how it would work if we did more privatization? No, because not at all. In fact, quite the opposite. Because there's no separate staff stream. There's only one staff stream. And we fund it. I mean, we fund every minute of the education for doctors, nurses, health professionals. We subsidize their tuition. We pay for their, um, we subsidize their health insurance, their coverage for um, liability insurance. We, uh, they're trained by public doctors and nurses and so on. I mean, every minute is hugely subsidized by the public and there's only one stream of them. So you take a nurse out of a public hospital that to work in a private clinic. The private clinic only does the light, easy, profitable cases. They don't do the complex patients. They don't have people who aren't ambulatory, right? They, they people who are on, you know, on stretchers with all kinds of tubes attached and so on. They, you know, they only take people who can walk in, walk out and have a quick, easy surgery, leaving behind the heavier, more complex cases to the public hospitals while taking the staff out of the public hospitals, leaving less staff to deal with the more complex cases. It's a, it's, it's not a, it's a zero sum total. And what it means is that, um, you know, we have hospitals all across Ontario that are closing down services as the government is opening up these private for profit services at greater expense. The other problem is that the private clinics extra bill patients and they're doing it all over the place. And your listeners may have family members who've gone for cataract surgery to a private clinic and been charged three, four, seven thousand dollars now. I mean, ludicrous prices for a five hundred dollar surgery. Um, and, uh, and also charged for all kinds of medically unnecessary add-ons. And if you don't mind, I'll just include for your listeners any medically needed eye measurement test for your cataract surgery, it's covered under OHIP. They, you know, anything that they're selling beyond that is not medically necessary. And eye drops, you know, they're covered with your surgery. They're covered under OHIP. They're not allowed to charge you for it. And they're not allowed to charge you for your cataract surgery. But the private clinics are doing it. And and that is, you know, a, 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 a fatal threat to public Medicare. Have you had any response at all from the health ministry? No. <laughs> she apparently yesterday she said um, the Ontario Health Coalition is ideologically opposed to anything we do to expand surgeries. I mean that's utter nonsense. We've called for for decades now for proper funding for Ontario's hospitals, for expanding operating room hours, and so on. We're opposed to the privatization 
of our public hospitals, to the dismantling of the public hospitals that all of our communities have spent a hundred years building, paying for, donating to, and trying to bring services closer to home in uh, that are run in the public interests and not for for profit interests. You know, that's it's uh, it's eminently practical, not uh, ideological. But also, I think sort of resorting to calling people names as opposed to arguing the point is the sort of last refuge of someone who doesn't have an argument to make. And as I say, you know, we spent a year researching this. The data is, you can't argue it. It's the fact. Natalie, I appreciate your time on the show this morning and the work that you've done to bring this story to light. Thanks very much for being here. Oh, thanks for having me. Natalie Mira is the executive director of the Ontario Health Coalition after a year of research and culling the data and freedom of information requests. The Health Coalition has released its latest report, Robbing from the Public to Build the Private, the Ford Government's Hospital Privatization Scheme. How do you feel about where we are at when it comes to health care in this province? In this country, I am bluntly concerned, and I think that's putting it mildly. I have reached an age and stage of life where I know that my need to access the healthcare system is growing ever greater. Right? With each passing day, it gets more and more likely that I'm going to need support from our healthcare system, or as I like to call it, our sick care system. Believe you me, I'm doing my best to not be a burden on the system. I'm trying to do and engage in some preventative medicine here. But eventually, like all of us, I'm going to need it. I might be a little closer to that than you. And I look at the system today, and I hear about emergency room closures, and I hear about operating rooms at Cambridge Memorial Hospital that are being used for storage because there's not enough staff to keep them running. And I get concerned. I don't want to fear monger, but I wonder how you feel about where we're at in the system today. Let me know your thoughts. This is the Mike Farwell Show on City News 570 and Rogers TV. In this kind of healthcare crisis, they're paying three times the rate for nurses to for-profit staffing agencies while they imposed wage caps. And only the public nonprofit healthcare entities had the wage caps, not the for-profit. I mean, across the board, you can see the treatment of the public nonprofit is much worse than the treatment of the private for-profit. Natalie Mira, the executive director of the Ontario Health Coalition, on the heels of a report released by the coalition yesterday that says the Ontario government is starving the public health system and starving it so it can support a private second-tier health system in this province. 519-570-2545, star 570, and 1-800-570-5715. Let's go to the phones and hear from you. John, good morning. Good morning, uh, Mr. Farwell. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Thank you for I, making it. I just had a, a comment about the health care. I am so grateful for how they helped me last year. I was so sick, and within just minutes, I was in the emergency. They had me hooked up to two IVs. I was in for a couple of weeks, but they healed me. And it was quick. I, yes, I had to stay in the hallway a little bit, but I was in the best place possible. And uh, I can't 
say anything. Like, I don't know the, the politics behind everything, but the politics behind what they did for me, I just am so grateful and thankful for John, I appreciate the phone call. And I'm glad you brought that forward because I think sometimes that gets lost in these conversations. As I mentioned before the break, I do find myself concerned to very concerned about the state of our system. It seems rather fragile. But as John reminds us all, once you're into the care of these hardworking healthcare professionals, you're getting the best care, arguably, anywhere in the world, right? They have compassion, they have skill, they have experience. And, and I think the idea is to not only keep it that way, but also to increase the numbers of them so that we don't have operating rooms sitting idle. We don't have incredibly long waits in our emergency rooms. We don't have, as we talked about this morning, two million Ontarians without a family doctor. Those point to severe cracks in the system. But when it comes to the need for the care, it's absolutely there, and the folks that provide it are top-notch. George, good morning. Yeah, good morning. There is one thing you can do, and it's minimize. Everyone listening, minimize your need for hospital care with eating right, exercising, doing supplements, whether it's nutrition that you're going to need to stay young, healthy, and not need hospitals, that is one way you can help the situation. George, I appreciate that too. I've said it many times. I even corrected my language before the break. I've always referred to our system here as a sick care system. We've heard the stories in the past of family physicians who say, you know what, I'm done treating people who are chronic smokers because they're doing more harm to themselves and I want to help work with people who I might have a better chance of helping out, right? Who are taking better care of themselves. I do believe in that ounce of prevention. I really do. I think that a lot of us rely on the emergency room as our family physician. We know the system is there to take care of us when the time comes. So, you know, we live kind of a a carefree life And, and hey, it's yours. And the fewer cares, the better, I suppose. You're certainly not going to have high blood pressure from stress. But I think George is on to something there, too. The old ounce of prevention and the more emphasis we can put on prevention and preventative medicine to keep us out of the system generally, the better all around. We'll take a break. Come back with more of your calls. It's the Mike Farwell Show on City News 570 and Rogers TV. Talking about healthcare here in Ontario and a new report from the Ontario Health Coalition that is entitled Robbing from the Public to Build the Private, the Ford Government's Hospital Privatization Scheme. Natalie Mira, the Executive Director of the Ontario Health Coalition, joined us moments ago to talk about it. Back to the phones for more of your calls. Bob, good morning. Hi, Mike. How are you? I'm well, thank you. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Good. I was in in the hospital there for about eight days and in that time frame i couldn't believe uh the way i was treated i mean it was great service you know and the nurses and the doctors and uh the the kitchen staff they're always there for you they're always 
you know, laughing, joking with you. But my concern was that sitting in my bed for eight days, looking out the hallways and seeing these nurses, they're not standing around. They're running around. They're like, they're, they're on the go. And, uh, it's totally, totally a concern for me as a, as an individual. Bob, I appreciate that, and I'm glad to hear another positive story from someone's experience within the healthcare system. You're not wrong, for sure. We've heard all kinds of stories like that. This is a demanding job that when you're on that 12-hour shift, you are hustling throughout the entirety of that 12-hour shift. It does feel as though we are understaffed. And again, I'll point to 2 million Ontarians without a family physician. We could start there and work our way through the system and find more gaps, but it doesn't seem like there are enough people to continue providing the excellent care that we are currently receiving. We've got an update on the way from the City News Centre. Before 11, the coldest night of the year, it just so happens to be this Saturday, but maybe not literally the coldest night of the year. We'll tell you about it. And after this update from the City News Centre, It is 69 years strong in our community, and the tradition continues. Stay with us on the Mike Farwell Show. This is City News 570 and Rogers TV. Well, I was just reminded that I think we have to call this segment Three Old Guys in a Studio. I made the mistake. <laughs> I made the mistake of opening the can. Uh, I'll get to that in a moment. My good friends from Kin KW, uh, Ron Couch, who is the chair of the annual Kinsman TV auction, is in studio with me, and Chris Van Vliet, who chairs the Items Committee, as we get set for the 69th annual Kinsman TV. TV auction. And I was joking that between the two of you, because you've both been involved in this for a long time, and then Ron said, yeah, well, how long have you been doing what you're doing? (laughs) All right, guys, so now that we've established (laughs) our experience, thanks for both being here. It's nice to see you. Ah, It's great to be here, Mike. Absolutely. Uh, Ron, let me start with you. 69 years now for this annual TV auction. Can you tell us a little bit about the history and why it all started? It started way back in, what, 1955, Chris? I believe so. Yeah, yeah. A a year Um, after CKCO opened. (laughs) There you go. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. Um, There were actually a couple of fellows in the club, I think, that that worked at CKCO, I believe. Yes. And just think about that now. So just recently, in the past year, that building, that iconic building on King Street... Sold. It's no longer, and CKCO right. CTV Kitchener has relocated. Yes, yes. Imagine uh, we were in their studios there at Christmas time when we donated some gifts there too. Um, but back in in the beginning, um, the uh, the studio was new. Uh, TV was new to the area and everything. They were looking to get involved in the uh, community, and of course approached us and and you know with that the connection they put together this idea of of an auction to uh, raise some money and create some exposure and all that kind of stuff so it's it started way back almost when tv started yeah (laughs) absolutely and so here we are 69 years later and chris i mentioned during that update with christine from the news center it's about three weeks away now march the 16th is go time Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, 
Our broadcast will be on March 16th uh, on the on Rogers TV or online with uh, RogersTV.com. And uh, our online bidding will actually start on the 13th um, on the Wednesday. So everybody can start logging in then, uh, getting a profile set up and start bidding uh, days before we're on the auction. And uh, all the items will be closing at the end of our broadcast at 3 p.m. on the Saturday. Okay. And that component is something that you've added recently, isn't it? The ability to kind of log in online ahead of time and start making bids? Yeah. Uh, we've been doing it, uh, I believe it was uh, 2019, we started uh, online bidding. Um, testing it out uh, became very uh, dominant uh, for the past couple of years, especially with the pandemic and everything, it just made everything a lot easier. Um, and we've actually found that there's a lot more um, people being involved with uh, actually bidding on items. Um, I don't have the numbers on me currently, but I know there was an increase on the exposure we had and with the amount of people being involved during the bidding process. Ron, do you have any idea over all of these years, decades now, how much money has been raised through this auction? Oh, I knew you were going to say something like that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I don't know that everybody, anybody's ever really done the math, but I, you know, like, would it be a couple million over over that span? I would think. I, I would say there's probably been millions of dollars uh, generated over the almost seven decades of TV auction. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, it's it's still our biggest project of the year, um, and giving back to various organizations or. Uh, um, facilities uh, throughout the, our community, uh, with our biggest uh, partnership being with KWHAB. Yeah, and KWHAB is just a terrific organization for sure. Ron, I know that, I mean, the two of you are sitting here talking about this. The big day is March the 16th, but there's so much work that is involved in getting this to air. Can you share some of the behind the scenes that leads us up to March the 16th so that you are ready for that TV auction on Rogers that starts at 10? Well, I don't know. Some of us, it's it's in our minds all year round. But back in the fall, we start to get serious about um, getting people together and um, all the ideas and everything. Um, and then late in the year, our club members will start you know, pounding the pavement to get items. We have a lot of repeat donors, and we thank them wholeheartedly. Uh, but there's there's always the need for new ones, and uh, so that there's uh, the big thing is getting the items. We have to uh, look at advertising, um, possibly storage for some items as we get them. Um, there's more you know, like dealing with the newspaper and radio and everything to get in all that advertising. We do have um, signs like this. (laughs) All you people on radio, that's what it looks like. That's okay. We're on Rogers TV right now as well. So there you go. There you go. We see signs like that uh, in uh, some store windows. Uh, It it, uh, promotes our auction and lets people know that um, this business has participated to help their community too. So... Um, I don't know what else, what else are we looking for in all these committee meetings and everything that we have. It's a lot of the push is is getting the items and getting them in enough time so poor Chris can actually itemize and log all these things on on the website so that people donating get the proper exposure 
and uh, also so that people can see what what they're getting. Now, all, all, each item will be pictured on the TV screen as we talk about it March 16th, so they'll get another look at it. And um, if they wanted to check it out more, there are links with each of the items to the donors so they can go to the donor website to get more info on it too, for that matter. You've always done such a great job with that. And one of the things that blows me away each and every year is the sheer variety of items that you have for auction. Chris, can you let us in on some of what we're going to be able to bid on this year? Yeah, there's a... It's a very wide range again this year. Um, everything from uh, home decor pieces. Um, there's been some uh, nice um, indoor uh, seating benches from Donald Choi this year. There's uh, things to do for your family, like uh, the Titans have donated a variety of types of tickets uh, for um, going to go see their basketball games, um, women's beauty products. Um, there's some hard items, and there's also gift cards or some of the spas around the region. Um, there's always some uh, restaurant gift cards as well. Um, so you can get out and enjoy a nice meal with uh, a significant other. Uh, there's always uh, some nice things for uh, anybody that wants to enjoy the outdoors. There's uh, So far, there's, I think, uh, seven golf packages available, um, some of them being from the local uh, golf courses. Some of them are for charity events um, as well. One of those being uh, the KW Hab annual charity golf tournament. Um, And KW Hab also has um, some uh, two sets or two tickets for their annual uh, scotch tasting as well. Um, There's also things for the handyman. There's plenty of tools like hand tools, power tools, Bikes for anybody that wants to get into the cycling community here uh, throughout the region. Um, home renovation items are going to be cataloged soon. Uh, <laughs> we just got confirmation on a delivery that uh, we're trying to organize presently. Uh, not sure exactly what that will all involve so far, but we're looking forward to having them up on the site as soon as possible and getting that information out there. There's also things for kids. Um, there's book sets, uh, plushies for your little ones. Uh, one of them is really interesting. It actually has a uh, a nightlight that uh, shines onto the ceiling with a starry night and plays melodies. It's kind of neat. Um, and lots of other things that people can check out on our website, which is www.kw. Kin.com. Yeah, it's, 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 as I said, a wide variety of items. That website, kwkin.com. The day on Rogers TV is Saturday, March the 16th. So that's three weeks this coming Saturday right. from 11 until 3 on Rogers TV. And you can get online and start bidding on Wednesday, March the 13th and start taking a look at things. Ron, are, are we ready for this? Is Ken ready to go? We have to be ready, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> Pressure is now on, gentlemen. Uh, love that you're here. Love the work that you're doing. 69 years strong. And I'm looking forward to seeing you on March the 16th you as bet. well. We are too. Thanks, guys. Ron Couch, Chris Van Vliet joining us in studio. Check out kwkin.com and get ready for the 69th annual Kinsman TV auction on March the 16th. This is the Mike Farwell Show on City News 570 and Rogers TV.
This Saturday, yes, as in two days from now, is the coldest night of the year. Perhaps not literally, especially as you consider the mild weather today. But figuratively, yes, and it's an important fundraiser that is hosted in our community by Supportive Housing of Waterloo. Its executive director, Brian Paul, joins us for a conversation. Brian, good morning. Good morning, Mike. How are you? I'm well, thank you. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. Glad to hear it. Can we maybe just call this the mildest night of the winter instead for this year? Uh, I think we can, <laughs> but I, I think uh, in honor of those who we're, we're looking to support, we'll keep it as the coldest night of the year. And it's important to say that. I mean, I say I make that joke, of course, uh, in jest, yeah. because this is an important fundraiser to draw awareness to the fact that, listen, even as mild as this winter has been, if you're living outdoors, it's a much different experience for you. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, and I'm just seeing a lot more people on the streets this winter. You know, even though it has been a milder winter, I'm just noticing as I'm driving around Cambridge, Kitchener, Waterloo, I'm just noticing a lot more people on the streets. I don't know if you are as well. And, you know, when it's when it's the winter, there's just you can see the suffering in people's eyes and it, it, it hits home a lot more. So having this event happening at this time of the year, is uh, it makes a lot of sense for, for us. I agree with that, Brian, and I have noticed that myself. However, anecdotally, that it does seem there are more people on the street. I remember when we had our first big snowstorm way back in November, I thought, oh my goodness, those folks that are living in tents right now, what kind of day slash night is this going to be for them? So important for us to keep in mind, and this walk on Saturday helps us remember that. What happens on Saturday around the fundraiser? What is the coldest night of the year? So coldest night of the year is a walk. It's it's an opportunity for for people to, it's a chance really for the uh, the community to rally and show support for those who are suffering, who those who are vulnerable and, and those in need. So the people on the streets, in the shelters, in the encampments, it's also a chance to highlight the work of show and our amazing residents. It's also a way to show, show support for the many organizations and the people working in the nonprofit sector who are working to end chronic homelessness. Uh, I mentioned this earlier, but there's more people on the streets. The situation seems to be getting worse. It's a chance to bring the community together to advocate for all those who need support. So we're walking. The the walk starts at uh, First United Church at 4 p.m. That's the gathering time. Uh, And then at 5 o'clock, we start the walk. It's a 5K walk or a 2K walk. We are walking up King as a group. So we currently have uh, 200 walkers confirmed. And we are at 99% of our goal financially. So we are going to wear our uh, white toques. We're going to wear, have our signs, our glow sticks, our balloons. And uh, we are going to walk up King. And it's going to be uh, a fun atmosphere uh, working to support those who need the help. And then we're going to go up to Columbia. And then we're going to come back and finish it off at First United, where we will have a photo booth, a meal, music, and an amazing host of speakers to round it off. I remember when you and I last spoke about this and you were confident of reaching that fundraising goal. You're just a hair away from it now, as you mentioned, at 99%, which is just terrific. What does this money help show Supportive Housing of Waterloo do? So this is our big fundraising event of the year. So the funds, gen- so we rely heavily on the generosity of our community to do the work we need to do. So the programming, the supports, 
the ability to provide affordable housing, we rely heavily on the generosity of our community and the fundraising piece is essential because these fundraising dollars, we call them unrestricted funds. So it means we can use these funds to provide the things we need to do, the overhead, the maintenance, the, the salaries, the, the administration, uh, uh, to run the programs to support the residents the best we can and the ability to provide the affordable housing you know, we do, we, we rely heavily on, the, on these fundraising events and these fundraising dollars. They're essential. You mentioned 200 walkers confirmed as of this moment. Is there room for more, Brian? And I'm sure there's room for more support if we're able to help out. This is the final push, Mike. Uh, we have two days to go. We want more. <laughs> we want more walkers. We want more teams. Um, you know, this is a real chance to to not just highlight the work of show, but to really show, you know, to rally the community to say we all understand what's happening and we have a role to play in this. And we want to highlight, um, you know, our desire to make this a better community. So that it's a real opportunity. No, we have a lot more room. Uh, it's a it's a call to say, come join us. Uh, it's a free event uh, to come down and do the walk with us. And it's going to be a fun, a really fun day. Uh, this is our third year doing it. And, um, yeah, we moved to First United because the first year we did it at our uh, at our building and we just outgrew the space. So, no, it's a big space. It's going to be a real fun time for everyone. Keep it going. Keep it growing. Uh, I love the work that you do. And thanks for making time for the show this morning, Brian. I appreciate it. Thanks so much, Mike. Brian Paul is the executive director of Show Supportive Housing of Waterloo this Saturday is the coldest night of the year. And listen, if you're a little bit like me and the cold weather isn't your favorite thing, the symbolism behind this is what's most important. And you can say you participated in a coldest night of the year event when, frankly, it was anything but. Saturday is not exactly going to be frigid. I'm going to be up in the Sioux. I might find some cold up there. But again, the symbolism of 200-plus people walking from First United Church at King and William up to Columbia and back again, all keeping in mind those who are experiencing homelessness, who are living outdoors, even in a quote-unquote mild winter, you know how difficult those nights can be. Check out cnoy.org, coldest night of year, cnoy.org. Look up the Waterloo location and you can participate and help them get over that $65,000 fundraising goal. This is the Mike Farwell Show on City News 570 and Rogers TV. Still to come on your program today, an hour from now, we open the phone lines for the 12 o'clock Talk Back Hour where you get to lead the conversation. It is Thursday. Every Thursday at 11.30, we have a little bit of fun with something we call the flip side. And today we're going to focus on your favorite Stephen King movie. None of them are as good as the books, though. Let's just be clear about that, okay? And following this update from the City News Center, it's an agency in Kitchener that supports people living with mental illness, helping them find affordable housing and providing individualized supports. Who are they and how do they do what they do? We'll find out next on the Mike Farwell Show. This is City News 570 and Rogers.
You don't know until you know. And if you know me even a little bit, you know that I take a great sense of pride in knowing what's going on around here. But it turns out that I could never know all of the things. Try as I might, there are always things, often great things, happening just beneath my radar that I don't become aware of until maybe good fortune crosses my path. And I think that was the case several weeks back now, probably going back months, a town hall meeting that I attended and while there was able to meet our next guest who is doing some of that great work in our community that I had no idea was being done. So why not bring it to the show so that you too can learn more about what Thresholds Homes and Supports are doing. Eric Phillip is the CEO of Thresholds and joins us for a chat. Eric, it's great to get you on the show. Good morning. Hey, Mike. Thanks for that introduction. That's an absolute pleasure. Thanks for the work that you do, sincerely, because I was so pleased to learn about it. And then there's that part of me that says, well, I'm not surprised because I know lots of good stuff happens. You know, the people rolling up their sleeves, getting stuff done behind the scenes that we may not know much about. Can you tell us a little bit about that work at Thresholds and what it is you do? Yeah, so Thresholds, it's an interesting story. It has actually been around since about 1980, uh, doing the good work that you've, that you've talked about. Um, and I'll be honest with you, you know, having that public face, public profile that other agencies have had has not been a priority for us historically. Like, we've been working, and our frontline staff do an amazing job uh, supporting, you know, individuals with complex mental health and substance use needs. Um, and now, kind of where we are as community builders, our role has really become, you know, much more than it used to be. And we need to have that public profile and talk about the work we're doing and talk about, you know, the complexity that's happening in our community. And so it's really exciting to have these conversations and talk about thresholds um, because we are the largest mental health housing provider, you know, in the region of Waterloo. We support over 400 people in houses, about 1,000 people annually within the community. Um, their impact is large, and I'm really excited to have this conversation. So how do you go about doing that, identifying the folks with the mental illness that you're able to provide both housing and support to? For sure. So like, we do have extensive wait lists for our housing support services. All individuals uh, within our housing units have a support worker, so they have someone uh, who they can work with in terms of managing their complexities. Um, and then we also support individuals outside in the community, uh, as they need it. For us, from a housing perspective, you know, we really work from the notion of providing the best possible housing for individuals. A lot of times in my sector, you know, we focus so much on, you know, mental health and substance use. Um, and for us at Thresholds, like what we want to do is provide the best home for someone possible. We think about what our family would want, um, you know, what our kids would want and where they would want to live. And really kind of the respect and the self-worth and self-dignity that comes from living someplace that is, you know, supported within the community um, and a real home for someone is kind of like how we base our care. You mentioned earlier, Eric, that because of the expanding scope or increasing need, it's time to have more of these public conversations. What has led to that? Is it an increase in mental illness? Is it the downturn in the economy, a combination of both? Yeah, it's definitely a combination of both. We've definitely seen an escalation um, in individuals' mental health needs over the last few years. I don't think that would be a surprise to anyone. 
um, just going back a little bit in terms of history, within the last four or five years, we really saw a transition um, where a lot of the like community building and literal construction of affordable housing and shelter services was transitioned to um, not-for-profit agencies um, through partnerships like with CMHC and other municipalities. And so the role of being a community builder um, was really put on within agencies within the community itself, which is an awesome thing. Like that's where we want to be. Um, but that also, you know, required community agencies like Thresholds uh, to do more work outside of what our normal kind of support structure would look like in terms of engaging with the broader community and really understanding the impact of our work within society itself. You've got some experience from Regent Park in Toronto. Can you share how that experience helps you do the work you do here in Waterloo Region today? Yeah, so Regent Park, for those who don't know, was a was a very intense, large-scale revitalization of an at-risk community in downtown Toronto um, and has been internationally recognized for its positive impact. And the reason why it was, it was so successful is because Regent Park was able to integrate um, individuals from all walks of life in one area and have like really strong embedded community services um, and levels of affordability. And if you walk through that community, you feel kind of like the, you know, the, the holistic and awesome nature of being there. And it was done from a perspective of community consultation. And so when we build um, here, you know, we talk about the need for affordable housing um, and really getting people off the streets into homes. And that's really important. Um, but what we want to avoid is also, you know, the construction of buildings where we have so much, uh, so many individuals at risk living at once and one place together that it becomes challenging to support, that it becomes tough on the broader community. And we, you know, we move into things like institutionalization, ghettoization um, of individuals. And what we want to do is build communities that we're going to look back on 10 years from now and are still really stable. Uh, and really like great places for people to live. And I think Regent Park was able to uh, be really successful in that nature. And, and you mentioned, Eric, how part of that success was because it was based on or began with community consultation. Have we perhaps been lacking that broad community consultation here? Um, it's tough. Like I, I work a lot with consultation, and I think you have to kind of walk this really challenging line between... Um, you know, listening to people and understanding um, their ability to have control and decision-making. And I think the most important we can, thing we can do in consultation is understand that people's opinions and their feelings and their concerns are valid. And we need to listen and, you know, and appreciate those concerns, even though they may be very different from our own. Um, and so when we work with community uh, thresholds, um, what I'll say to people is I want to make sure they feel heard um, and then I just want to say, you know, I'm going to present solutions to these challenges and problems that you're seeing that may look different than the solutions you have in mind, but I promise you we can work together to get somewhere better together. And I think that's the most important thing in terms of community building. And, I, like, I think we do a good job of that here from what I've seen. I think this area is really supportive and engaging and, and you know, considerate in terms of this work. How are you funded? So we are funded directly from Ontario Health and the Ministry of Health. Um, is how we get most of our funding. So that funds our rent subunits that we maintain and also the funding for staff through Ontario to support uh, the individuals we serve. Is there a place folks could go, Eric, to learn more about the work that you're doing at Thresholds Homes and Supports? Yeah, we love partnerships. Uh, so come 
you know, partner with us, work with us. Uh, you can visit uh, thresholdsupports.ca to learn more and reach out. And we'd love to continue the conversation. Considering where we are at in this conversation, we're talking a lot about it. There's absolutely, at least from where I'm sitting, more attention than ever being paid on homelessness and issues around homelessness that include mental illness, etc. Are you encouraged? Do, do, do you have confidence that we can achieve these necessary solutions in the community? Yeah, always. We, we have to be positive that we're going to get there. And it, it is very easy to focus on the negative and the challenges. And I think like, we need to spend time celebrating the amazing work that's happening in this community. And I'm extremely encouraged by the work and the initiative um, that's happening through, through very severe and very real challenges. And it's not going to be easy. But everything I've seen um, you know, since the last year that I've been here makes me feel like we're going to get to a better place as we continue to work together. Eric, I really appreciate your time on the show this morning and the work that you and the team at Thresholds are doing. Thanks very much for joining the show. Take care. Eric Phillip is the CEO of Thresholds Homes and Supports, Inc. You can learn more about them. I had no idea it even existed and was doing the work it's doing in the community. Look them up online, thresholdssupports.ca, and learn more than perhaps what you just got from this conversation this morning. We're going to take a quick break. Uh, When we come back, did you hear the one about the dog that took a train? Oh, no? I love me a good dog story, and I'll share it with you coming up. This is the Mike Farwell Show on City News 570 and Rogers TV. Sometimes you come across a story that's just too irresistible to not share. And I admit my bias coming into this one because not only do I basically love all things dog, but having had a boxer as part of our family, I am extremely biased towards all things boxer. I think they just might be the best, not to mention the goofiest dogs on the planet. But... If you know Brianna Rutherford, let's make sure this story reaches her ears because she is the doggy hero as far as I'm concerned. A few weeks ago at the Mill Street Station where the light rail transit system, ION, stops here in the region, uh, Brianna, who was operating the train that day, noticed that a dog had made its way onto the platform where the train was stopping. It seems Rocco, the boxer who lives near the Mill Street Station, had escaped the backyard. And I'll tell you this also about boxers. For larger dogs, they are Houdini-esque in their escape-like abilities. (laughs) It's It's not every yard that can contain a boxer. So Rocco found his way out of his yard and onto the platform as the ion was rolling into the station. Fortunately, Brianna Rutherford, the operator of that particular train, spotted Rocco as she was pulling into the station. And then when she opened the doors to let passengers on and off, noticed that Rocco had decided, 
I'm free. And not only am I free from my yard, but I'm going on a little adventure. And Rocco walked right on board (laughs) the train. So I guess these trains and the operator cab as part of them have security cameras so you can keep an eye on things. And Brianna kept her eye on Rocco once realizing that he had safely boarded the train and was wearing a collar and tags, went and collected the dog and took Rocco into the operator's cab with her for the trip to Fairway Station. And then around, of course, when it would turn and and work its way back again eventually to the Mill Street Station. One of the things I love about this is that Brianna was committed to keeping that train running on time. There's no time to hold up the train and find the owner in this moment. People have to get where they're going. And we've got to keep the train running. So we'll, you know, find the owner on the next pass through. So Brianna Rutherford gathers in Rocco, brings him up into the operator's cab with her, and boxers being what they are, Rocco decided, okay, I'm cool, I'm free, now I'm just going to take a nap. So Rocco, the boxer, naps on the floor of Brianna's operator's cab on the Ion a few weeks ago. As it makes the trip to Fairway Station, she says he was quiet the whole time, and hey, what a bonus for her having some company that morning. And then, as she radioed in the unexpected passenger, didn't you know, as much as there has been a push from dog-friendly KW to allow pets on board public transit, and as much as I love pets, I don't think this is something that should be done, with the exception, of course, of service dogs. So, Brianna keeps an eye on Rocco. Rocco takes a little nap on his Ion train adventure, And eventually they were able to track down the owners and get Rocco back safely to where he belonged near the Mill Street station. How cool is that? Dog decides to take a ride on light rail transit and Brianna Rutherford, who was operating that particular train, was able to ensure Rocco's safety, had a little bit of company for the morning and then make sure that he got back to exactly where he belonged. You never know what you're going to see on public transit, eh? This is the Mike Farwell Show on City News 570 and Rogers TV. Well, now that you know the story of the day Rocco the Boxer dog not boxer as in heavyweight champ but Rocco the dog who just happened to be a boxer took a trip on an ion light rail train from the mill street station just something else regarding local transit that popped into my head this morning and I feel as though I should put a disclaimer on this commentary because I suspect it will offend some if not many. I think I'll stick with some. So if you are likely to be offended, maybe you can just, I don't know, push the button for something else for just a quick moment. But it occurred to me this morning when I was listening to the story, and believe you me, I'm all for it. I got no issue with the decision made that the Every Child Matters rap is going to be kept on 
our Grand River Transit bus until September and the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. I think it's great. I think it's great that we did the rap. I love the idea that we should feature a different indigenous artist with that rap annually, etc. All for it. No issues whatsoever. But what popped into my head was this. There was a great deal of pushback when the idea of putting advertising on Grand River Transit vehicles, both buses and trains, to generate extra revenue for the transit system. Lots of pushback, talking about how it detracts from the ridership experience on public transit, these wraps that go around the entire vehicle. So um, just out of curiosity... Are we equally vexed by the Every Child Matters rap that goes around a vehicle? Is that also detracting from the ridership experience? Or is, or is that one okay as long as it's not an advertisement for goodness knows what? Just asking for the purposes of curiosity. Because I am a curious cat after all. I didn't, I didn't hear much in the way of uproar or concern over the rider's experience when it was the Every Child Matters rap, only if it's advertising. I, I just thought there might have been a, a wee bit of hypocrisy in there. All right, an update from the City News Center is coming up. And then, as we do every Thursday morning at 11.30, we have a little bit of fun on something we call the flip side. And I got a phone call yesterday that turned the light bulb on above my head. Doesn't happen often, but Brian got me thinking. So we'll have some fun with that. Coming up, stay with us. It's the Mike Farwell Show on City News 570. Well, my family knows this all too well. I remind them of it frequently, so frequently that there will be times that we'll be having a conversation and usually a good laugh, and they'll say, don't use this on the radio. This is not for your radio show. Because the well-known phrase or idea in the Farwell family is that everything is show prep. Whatever happens could be turned into something that we talk about on the radio program. And so it happened yesterday morning. If you are a regular listener of this show, thank you very much for that. If you are not... I'll just let you know that every day we start the show with a different song. And that song has some particular significance to that day. And as it turned out, yesterday we played the song Stand By Me by Ben E. King, a song that I'm sure you know very well. And I like to explain why we used it on that day. So yesterday, it was on that day, February the 21st, back in 1987, when... Ben E. King's song, Stand By Me, went to number one. Of course, that came more than two decades after the song was originally recorded back in 1961, but it was a movie by the same name that brought the song back into the mainstream consciousness, made it a number one hit in 1987, and then me being me, stream of consciousness, a little bit of a tangent, and I talked about the movie Stand By Me, being based on a Stephen King story called The Body. And also, me being me, I opined because that's what I do. In fact, that's the very reason they pay me. Because I have an opinion, damn it, and I'm not afraid to share it. And so I suggested 
in my casual, flippant sort of way, that Stand By Me, based on the Stephen King story, The Body, was one of the better adaptations of a Stephen King book or story. And it occurred to me in that moment, in that stream of consciousness, that I think the very best Stephen King movies or books turned into movies are those that are not even entitled the same. For example, The Shawshank Redemption could very well be the absolute best based on the Stephen King novella, Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption. They took the Rita Hayworth part out of the movie title, but you get where I'm going with this. I, in my need to pontificate and opinionate, decided that the very best Stephen King treatments of books to movies came in ones that weren't even named after the original title of the book. And that prompted this call from Brian. Okay, just a couple of glaring omissions from your list of great Stephen King books that were made into even better movies, I think. Okay. Got four of them real quick. The Dead Zone, come on. Nope. Uh, Carrie? Yeah, it was not bad. Oh, Mike, come on. The Shining? I didn't. It didn't do it for me. Oh, my God, Mike. What about Kudo? Definitely not. Oh my God! Okay. <laughs> I got the I got movie critic Mike today. I'm going to be the elitist. Hey Brian, the book was better than the movie. Okay. I I just think <laughs> that they were great Stephen King uh, novels that were made into pretty great movies. So that's what Brian thought, and it's okay. Brian's allowed to think that. He's allowed to share that opinion. And when that conversation occurred yesterday, the light bulb went off. I thought, well, maybe, just maybe. You also have an opinion on this. I, I'm sticking to it. The Shawshank Redemption, probably number one, not even the title of the story upon which it was based. Rita Hayworth and The Shawshank Redemption. And then The Body, which turned into Stand By Me. I would probably put The Green Mile in there as well. If I'm going for my top three, those would be them. Shawshank, Stand By Me, The Green Mile, which was the title of the book that Stephen King wrote. If you didn't know, when he originally released it, he released it in serial edition. There were like six smaller books leading to the one big overall story. But it is my contention that Stephen King movie books turned into movies are basically crap movies. That's just my opinion. Uh, Devin Robertson, our guy on the other side of the glass, is there a Stephen King story that got turned into a movie that you watch and said, yeah, like that's a good movie? I mean, you've already said it. I loved Stand By Me. It's really good, right? Yeah, phenomenal. Absolute favorite. I was a sucker for Pet Cemetery. Really? Yeah. See, I loved the book. Not I, so much. I have yet to read the book myself. I just saw the movie when I was a kid, and it scared the bejesus out of me, <laughs> and it stuck. Isn't that always the way? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you see them at a certain time of life, maybe when you were not supposed to be seeing it. Probably not. And it puts the fear of God into you. Exactly. All right. Yeah. So stand by me for you. And here's the other thing about stand by me. And I have to confess, I haven't even read the body, but the movie stand by me, while absolutely based on the premise that these young friends are going to go in search of the dead body. It doesn't have any of the typical Stephen King overtones to it, does it? Other than the nostalgia maybe of, you know, youth. Yeah, and being set in Maine. 
Yeah, of course. <laughs> and even Castle Rock, right? I think they called it Castle Rock. I think they set that one in Oregon. But anyway, yeah, it, he's always got that premise. But it didn't have the creepy overtones at all, other than they were trying to find a dead body. Yeah, very light on any sort of horror right. that he's best known for. But yep. it's such... I don't even know that I can put into words. A formative film for me as well. Saw it when I was younger, and it's just it's such a great encapsulation of boyhood. I think you, know? you nailed it. It's definitely a coming-of-age story. So what about you? Can you find for me a Stephen King story that got turned into a good movie? Brian did get me thinking a little bit. Okay, Carrie, not bad. Christine is another book that I absolutely loved. The movie did virtually nothing for me. And... I would submit to you that Stephen King is so gifted a writer and has so warped a mind that you can't possibly take all of the things that he puts on the page and translate them into an effective movie at all. I wish I loved The Shining. I didn't love The Shining. I loved The Dead Zone as a book. Didn't care for it as a movie. The Stand is probably one of my all-time favorites. And... The miniseries that it got turned into, I, I couldn't even get through like all of the episodes because I'm like, this just doesn't, not even close. And don't even get me started with it, despite the local connection and the scenes that were shot right here in Waterloo Region. I'm sorry. The book was fantastic. Every version of the movie was awful, in my opinion. 519-570-2545, star 570, and one 800 570 Find me the Stephen King book that actually got a good movie treatment. Steve, what do you say? Uh, I got to say Misery. Misery, okay. I thought, was yep. very, very well done. But one of the better movies, and I think it was taken from one of the short story books, and that was Thinner. I really enjoyed that movie, too, because it was all kind of like B actors. There were no real big expectations, but I think it was filmed and played better than, than it hadn't been attended. You know what, Steve? Those are two... Excellent examples. And note how he talks about Thinner being one of the shorter stories, right? The, it seems, again, like forget The Stand, which was an epic, and trying to turn that into a movie. Take the shorter stuff. Thinner, also written under Stephen King's pseudonym when he pretended to be Richard Bachman. So there you go. Rob, good morning. Hi, Mike. How are you? Good. How are you? Good. Um, my two, two good, really good Stephen King movies. One was... Um, was Salem's Lot with David Soule. And that one was that when I read that book and it was absolutely phenomenal and they were almost word for word in the movie. And the original Stand movie, again, was almost word for word. The original movie, not the series, but those by far are my two favorite Stephen King. The original Stand movie. I'm afraid I don't remember that one. I remember the more recent miniseries. Yeah, one came out, oh boy. Uh, I'm an old fellow, but I think it came out in the early 80s. Okay, I'll look for it. it. Yeah, it was phenomenal. Take care, Mike. Have a great day. Thanks, Rob. You too. Nice to hear from you. And I confess, I don't think I've even read Salem's Lot. I've read, like, so much of Stephen King's stuff. I'm not sure I've read Salem's Lot. But there you go. Take the Stephen King story that was turned into a good movie. I want to find the good ones, because I, I submit to you, there aren't many, if any, Good Stephen King movies. The books, fantastic. The movies, not so much. This is the flip side on the Mike Farwell Show, City News 570, and Rogers TV.
I made a random off-the-cuff comment yesterday, as I so often do. It prompted a phone call from Brian, which led us to where we are today on the flip side. It's all about Stephen King stories that get turned into movies, and I find it difficult to find one that I actually like. There have been lots, though. I give a top three of Shawshank Redemption, Stand By Me, and The Green Mile. Devin Robertson, our guy on the other side of the glass, said, yeah, Stand By Me was formative for him in his youth. I love the email from Dave to Mike at 570news.com. I really enjoyed The Running Man penned under Richard Bachman. Also a great one, Dave. And who couldn't get behind Richard Dawson? Yes, that Richard family feud Dawson as a bad guy. Uh, Let's go back to the phones and hear from you on this. Paul, good morning. Good morning, Mike. How are you? I'm great, thank you. How are you? I am very good. I agree wholeheartedly with your top three list. Uh, Shawshank Redemption was excellent. Uh, One comment on The Shining. I loved the movie, but Stephen hated it. He did not like the adaptation of the movie. Really? He has the courage to say that in the face of Jack Nicholson? He did. He did not like the way it was adapted. Uh, And did I hear correctly that you have not read The Body? No, I haven't actually. That's all right. That's bad. That's really bad of me, huh? Well, you're commenting on how great the adaptation is. You haven't even read it. It's a very good point. That's a very, <laughs> Paul. That is fair. Fair comment by you, sir. So you need to go out and either you know get the the book or buy. I just bought my daughter a, a, an individual novella on the short uh, story, The Body, and read that. I will do it. I promise. All right. Uh, <laughs> All right, Paul, thanks for the call. It's like my English teacher in high school. Farwell, do the homework before you write the essay. I was pretty good at doing that, but that's a fair comment by Paul. I'm going to go to the KPL and find it. Gerald, good morning. Hey, how are you doing? Great, Um, how are you? I'm good. Good. Uh, You're talking about uh, Stephen King, so uh, I thought that 11-22-63 was a good adaptation. I'm not a big fan of James Franco, in the part he played, but uh, I think the movie touched on some uh, some really good uh, issues around personal lives, as well as uh, you know the future and past and changing stuff. So I like it, Gerald. Appreciate that one. I've I've neither read the book nor seen that adaptation, but it definitely intrigues me. I can't believe with all the Stephen King that I've read, there's so much more <laughs> that I haven't read. Brenda, good morning. Hello. How Hello. Are you doing? Great. How are you? Good, good, thanks. I always thought The Shining was a great Stephen King movie because of the leading actor was phenomenal in how he portrayed uh, all the scenes. I, uh, I always thought that was a fantastic one. I, I've seen quite a few. Uh, Carrie and Christine that didn't do it for me, but the Shining freaked me out. Really, <laughs> me out. Brenda, thanks for the call. Listen, when Jack is coming through the door with an axe, it, it, it can it can definitely freak you out. There's no doubt about it. Kyle, good morning. Good morning. Um, yeah, you have. I'm going to go stand by me absolutely as well. And if you haven't read the body, it's literally word for word from the movie. Is it like really? That. Eh. Yeah, because you know what's funny? I saw Stand by Me on VHS when I was a kid. My mom bought the movie at a garage sale. Yeah, loved it. And then when I was in grade, I think it's grade 10 or 11, we actually read the body. And I'm looking, I'm reading it, and I'm like, 
this is this is exactly what they said in the movie. So it's pretty much word for word. So I would say, yes, do your homework, and I'll be grading you by tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Kyle. Can I cheat off you if you've already read it? I'll cheat off Kyle and see how that works for me on the exam. Uh, I did come across a list this morning of the ranking, the definitive ranking. I would... Devin Robertson, what do you say? Rotten Tomatoes is that like is that definitive enough for rankings of Stephen King movies? Uh, as close as you can get to definitive. That's what I thought, right? Yeah. All right, I'll tell you what's at number one on that list as we continue with the flip side this morning. A, a Stephen King story that actually got turned into a good movie. Uh, we'll take more of your calls, and I'll get to the list from Rotten Tomatoes on the Mike Farwell Show. This is City News five seventy and Rogers TV. Was there really ever a good movie adaptation of a Stephen King novel? I struggle. I found a few that I liked. Devin Robertson and I agree on Stand By Me. And in fact, Rotten Tomatoes agrees with us as well. It's number two on the Rotten Tomatoes list. I'll get back to that in a moment. But first, back to the phones. Grant, good morning. uh, Good morning. I would say, uh, Carrie, uh... Uh, and for, yeah, I couldn't really get into The Shining, Stand By Me. Yeah, I would say both of those ones are pretty high up there. Interesting. I wonder if Grant wrote the list for Rotten Tomatoes. Carry and Stand By Me, he says. I'll give you the top ten according to Rotten Tomatoes. And at number ten, they take my number three. The Green Mile, only at number ten on the Rotten Tomatoes list of Stephen King stories turned into movies. Number nine was 1408. It had John Cusack in it. It's about a creepy hotel room. I confess to not having seen it, nor read the story. The Shining in at number eight, so a lot lower than many of you place it. Dolores Claiborne at number seven. Kathy Bates in that one, though. And she, I think, made misery as creepy as it was. Number six, It. I can't get there on that one. I didn't enjoy either of the movies, and I saw them both, a made-for-TV movie and then the most recent theatrical one. Didn't do it for me. But hey, number five on the Rotten Tomatoes list, The Dead Zone. Number four, Misery. Number three, Shawshank Redemption, which was my number one. Number two, Stand By Me, which was my number two and Devin Robertson's number one. And number one, Stephen King's story turned into movie, according to Rotten Tomatoes, Carrie. And Brian mentioned that in his phone call yesterday, and I thought about it. It's pretty damn good. Anyway, I still say the books are better than the movies. Thanks for playing along. Thanks for having fun. Hey, if you want to be a part of the conversation, open lines are coming up on the Mike Farwell Show. Our friends at Rogers TV are done for the day. Thank you to Robert and the team for producing the TV side of this show. To the City News Center we go for an update. And then Open Line Radio, the 12 o'clock talkback hour is about to begin on City News 570. Take out the papers and the trash. Just finish cleaning up your room. Let's see that dust fly with that broom. Get all that garbage out of sight. Or you don't go out Friday night. Don't talk back. Oh, 
I gotta just send a huge, huge shout out and thanks to our sales manager, Ben Gingrich. Hey, reach out to him. 519-743-2611. Take care of all of your promotional and advertising needs, okay? So <laughs> what we do around here. Uh, ben was playing gopher for me. To my buddy Greg, too, thank you. I, I'm sorry. I, ben poked his head into the studio just before Paul McPhee started reading the sports, and I'm like, I, I, Greg is at the door. He's got a gift. I'm like, I got 60 seconds before we're back on the air here. It's time for the 12 o'clock talkback hour. I'm sorry I, I don't have time to run down the hall. And Ben just showed me through the window that it's some ginormous... Hey, Devin, he dropped it in your studio. Do tell a little bit more. Is it one of those uh, caramel Reese peanut butter cups? Uh, let me check for you. Yeah, it please do. Is a giant one. I'm not seeing anything about caramel. Okay, I haven't tried the caramel one yet. Just so you know, now that you have admitted on the air that a giant Reese peanut butter cup is in that studio with you, yep. remember it was dropped off for me, pal. Uh, what happens, happens. Get That's your grubby say. paws off my Reese peanut butter cup. <laughs> <laughs> Greg, thank you. Ben, thank you. I'm sorry I didn't have time to come down the hall and greet you in person. Uh, really appreciate any and all gifts, especially when they contain sugar. Greg, you know me too well. All right. I, I'm going to go from sugar right into spice here. because I, And I mentioned this at the beginning of the show today. And I said I had the audio to back it up, and I want to I wanted to do that now because while Pierre Polyev was in town yesterday uh, making his appearance to talk about, what is it, axe the tax, build the houses, um, what else are we doing? We're axing taxes, we're building houses, we're reducing crime. I'm missing one, and I, forgive me for that. But look, the man is on message. You, you can't deny that. He is already campaigning, even though there's not an official campaign. And he did a marvelous job of getting his point across yesterday. He was also asked during his appearance in Kitchener about transgender women participating in female sports and using female washrooms. And Pierre Polyev did not hesitate in answering the question directly and saying that he believes there should be safety and sanctity of female-only spaces. That led to a call that we got from Adam on the show, and Adam was quite vexed by this. And, well, here's what Adam had to say when he called yesterday. We're talking about homelessness, and we're ignoring public policy, and we're asking the federal leader of the opposition about women in bathrooms or men in bathrooms of women and sports. The focus is off. It happens every time they're trying to get Pierre in this gotcha moment. We press on soft issues to try and, you know, trap someone into getting attacked. Every election, every time, you know, they bring up the abortion conservative thing. They bring up the LGBT thing with, you know, like it's nonsense. Let's knock it off. Okay. It's nonsense. Let's knock it off. We're trying to trap Pierre Polyev. Hang on. Just a second. I am here to tell you that this was the furthest thing from a trap. In fact, it might be as close as anything to a plant. That's my humble opinion based on the person who asked the question. So have a listen to the following exchange when Pierre Polyev gave his direct answer. But 
consider and consider carefully who it is that's asking the question. And then ask yourself, is this actually a trap? Are we trying to bait the leader of the federal conservative party? Good morning, Mr. Polyev. David Menzies with Rebel News. Mr. Polyev, for the last few years, our news organization has been covering what can only be described as a war on women. Biological males are pretending to be females, and these men are invading female safe spaces. This includes female sports ranging from volleyball to rugby, as well, men pretending to be women are gaining access to female shelters and even female prisons. My question, sir, is should you form the next federal government, will you make female safe spaces safe again by introducing legislation that bans so-called transgender women from participating in female sports and getting access into female shelters and female prisons? Female spaces should be exclusively for females, uh, not for biological males. Um, the, you ask if I introduce legislation on that. A lot of the spaces you described are provincially and municipally controlled. So it is unclear what federal legislation, would ha- what reach federal legislation would have to change them. But obviously, uh, female sports, female change rooms, female bathrooms should be for females, not for biological males. Okay, so there's a direct answer to the question. Before I talk again about how this is the furthest thing from a trap, can we just reject the utter nonsense that David Menzies brings forward in this, talking about so-called women and this invasion of female-only spaces? They're like <laughs> People who have transitioned are not a threat to the other people around them. And, and perpetuating that narrative is utter poppycock. Like, that needs to come to an end. And I don't know how we bring it to an end. I guess I just platformed David Menzies, and my apologies for that. But my point in so doing was to emphasize how this was not a question that was meant to trap the leader of the federal conservative party, because look where it came from. If we're being honest, is there any, and I'll use the term loosely, media outlet that is more friendly towards Pierre Polyev than Rebel News? I suggest not. It's not as though that question came from the CBC. So consider that when you try to perpetuate the narrative of your own that says people are trying to trap the leader of the federal conservatives. It is my contention that Pierre Polyev wanted this question to be answered or wanted this question to be asked so he could answer it directly. And as you heard him say... But obviously, uh, female sports, female change rooms, female bathrooms should be for females not for biological males. Female sports, female bathrooms, female change rooms should be for females, not biological males. Do you wonder, as I do, if he did not want the question asked in order that he curry favor with women? Maybe, just maybe, and I tried to find some survey data which 
unless I missed it, it doesn't exist. I, I might not have done a deep enough dive before the show today, but it's possible that there is a percentage of women in this country, and we tend to not associate women with the conservative movement, right? Conservatives are generally regarded as angry old white dudes like me. So is this possible that it's an effort on the part of the leader of the federal conservatives to curry favor with women? Is it possible that some women feel uncomfortable in their spaces when those spaces are shared with men who have transitioned? It's possible. If this makes them feel safer, you might be currying favor with some female voters. Again, a trap? Hell no. The furthest thing from. And I suggest that because of where the question came from. Interestingly, have a listen to Elizabeth May, co-leader of the Federal Green Party, on our show today when I asked her for her reaction to what Pierre Polyev said. Ms. May did not in any way indicate there should not be female-only bathrooms. This is vile. You don't say these things. What we see happening in other jurisdictions is when people want to foment anti-trans hate and, and, and fear. I mean, why shouldn't we have gender-neutral bathrooms? I mean, as a woman, I mean, I don't know why Pierre Poilievre is suddenly fixated on women's washrooms, but I, I can. Uh, there's no issue for the women I know that it's actually it actually frees up some women's washrooms when you might want to find one at, in an intermission at any show you've ever been to. And Mike, I know you're not a woman, but if you've ever been in intermissions, you know in any theater, any symphony orchestra event, the women's washroom lineup is for miles. Why not have gender neutral bathrooms? there's no harm there's there's no downside you still have the choice if you really you can go find a ladies room if you really want one why not have gender neutral bathrooms pierre polyev did not say we should get rid of or we should have no gender neutral bathrooms he did not say that what he said was but obviously uh, female sports female change rooms female bathrooms should be for females and not for biological males that's kind of what Ms. May alluded to. We'd actually welcome it because it would free up space. So uh, I'm I'm not 100% sure there. What I am 100% sure of is this. If you want to transition, transition. If you want to use the bathroom, use the bathroom. If you want to play sports, play sports. The fact that this has become a political hot potato boggles my mind. It honestly boggles my mind. This is your 12 o'clock talkback hour on the Mike Farwell Show. This is City News 570. We were chatting about this at home last night, and I must confess, this is one of my favorite parts of the day. When we open up the phones, just so I can hear from you and find out what's on your mind, have a conversation... Sometimes we get passionate. It's good. Keeps me on my toes. And I like it. I like hearing what's on your mind. Lord knows you get to hear enough about what's on my mind. Let's go to the phones. Kyle, 12 o'clock, talk back to you. I just have two raves. That's okay. I know we're not doing rental rave anymore, but I got two raves. The first one is, is last Saturday, I saw the team that shall not be named in the Washington Capitals play at the team's place home center. (laughs) Did, Did you lose a bet? 
No, but you know, oh. it was nice to see Ovechkin play before oh. he retired. All right. You know what? That's my biggest grave. My second one is is just to the garage in Montreal that helped my car out. It died for two days, and uh, I'm back now. But, yeah, it was a bit of an adventure. Spent $400 more than I wanted to, but I'm home. So that's all, that's all i got to say there, Mike. Thank you very much, my friend. All right, Kyle. I'm glad you're home. I'm glad it was a successful trip. Mark, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Mike. Um, I heard the verdict on... Uh, that poor London family, um, I, I believe, and I disagree with the verdict, Mike. You disagree with uh, life in prison? 25 years. Okay, and I disagree with that, and I'll tell you why. He should have got 25 years for each family member killed, which is 100 years, no parole, see you later, alligator. That's my opinion, Mike. Mark, I appreciate the call. We, uh, yes, we do not do concurrent sentences here in Canada. Although I thought we were getting around to that for some of the um, stricter or the more severe crimes. Uh, It is a concurrent life sentence. Yeah, so uh, 25 years with no chance of parole. And sorry, so we don't do consecutive sentences here. We do concurrent. So multiple uh, convictions can all be served in one 25-year term. Let's just... Be clear, and I I get it, and you're welcome to, you know, respond to and be negative towards the sentence handed down. But it is still, just because somebody becomes eligible for parole at some point does not mean they will be granted parole. But I hear where you're coming from, and Mark says, life in prison with no chance of parole for 25 years is not enough for the man that ran down a Muslim family in London. I got you, loud and clear. Grant, good afternoon. Yeah, good afternoon. Yeah, I don't know about this politician, what he was thinking. There's already enough stress with these individuals that have changed their sex. Does he not think that this could create a lot more stress? uh, probably, let's say there's, I don't know, there could be an uprise of people uh, going through some type of mental illness because of this dodo bird that's uh, saying that no one, no transgender people should be using these, like, I don't know what planet he's from, and I know f- f- from years ago uh, at the center in the square they had uh, a big uh, uh, musical come there, and they they were using the men's washroom for the ladies because they they knew that well, not we're gonna have more women, and I know at the humanities theater. Years ago, they had, is it, yeah. I Gender neutral. New, yeah. Tr- yes. Grant, I get you. And I'll tell you where Pierre Polyev is from or what planet he's from. He's from planet Earth. I just, I don't know why we are so fixated on these issues. I am incredibly uncomfortable with the idea that gets perpetuated that people who have transitioned are somehow a danger to others around them. That is just, it's garbage. Like, stop it. Because it, they're not. 
Like, they're not. Nobody is transitioning so that they can prey on somebody else. Can we just be clear on that? And honestly, do you remember what Pierre Trudeau once famously said, that the state has no business in the bedrooms of the nation? Get out of the bedrooms! Get out of them, please! And while you're at it, get out of the bathrooms. <laughs> Honest to goodness gracious. You want to have a men's washroom facility and a women's washroom facility and a gender-neutral washroom facility? Fill your facilitated boots, please, and thank you. It's the 12 o'clock talkback hour on the Mike Farwell Show, City News 570. Just ahead of an update from the City News Center, let's go back to the phones. Jason, good afternoon. Afternoon, Mike. Just a couple of little uh, points. Uh, I, I found it very disheartening to hear uh, Mr. Polyev yesterday uh, refer to our Prime Minister as just as Trudeau. Um, I think, you know, being the Prime Minister, and, and you may not like him, um, and he may not like him and his policies, but at the same time, he does, he deserves a little bit of respect. And so, you know, I was a bit taken back. I'm not surprised, but a bit taken back when he was just referring on the show as, well, Trudeau did this and Trudeau did that, as opposed to the prime minister or Mr. Trudeau. I just, maybe it's a little nitpicking on my, uh, on my part, but I just, you know, I would never, you know, outside of council, if I was um, angry at the mayor, say, oh, well, Vanovich said this or Schneider said this, you know, I would refer them as the mayor or counselor so-and-so anyways second point you know i i found um his interview sorry his press conference yesterday just a little bit just disingenuous you know he talked about requiring city you know if he's elected you know cities will have to build more homes build more homes you know 15 percent of of more homes it's you know here the reality is we as a city you know of kitchener have approved many many builds that are not being built and it comes down to um, you know, the pressures of inflationary uh, materials and, and supplies and workers. And so, you know, to say, well, I'm going to get it all done. I, honestly, unless you're forcing the developers and you're, you're penalizing them from not building, they're not going to build until prices come down and they can make more money. And so I just found that a little bit disheartening. And the, and the last thing he also said was talking about um, international students living on the streets, living, uh, you know, I, I find, again, I believe that's quite inaccurate. They're not living in the best conditions, but they're not coming here, living on the street, going to Conestoga College or the two universities. And so, you know, if we're going to be, if we're going to have people um, that want to be elected representatives, and I know sometimes it's hard for them to tell the truth, at least, you know, try to get some of the truth out there as opposed to just your own, mis- you know, your own facts that, that seem logical in your own brain. Jason, appreciate the call and your thoughts on this. I think that's why some refer to this current pre-election campaigning as rage farming. It might be a little bit hyperbolic in order to get people agitated. On the nit you wanted to pick, I'm there for it. Uh, I have corrected people on this show who refuse to or pretend they can't pronounce Pierre Poilievre's name. And we work on that together too. So I think it's fair comment on how he referred to the leader of the Liberal Party and or the Prime Minister, depending on which way he wishes to do that. we got to take a break, get you an update from the City News Centre, and then we come back with you leading the conversation during the 12 o'clock talkback hour. This is the Mike Farwell Show on City News 570. The 12 o'clock talkback hour is just what it sounds like. Talk back like you always wanted to to your parents but weren't allowed or maybe you tried it 
And you got them telling you, like our theme song said today, shut up of your face. Remember that one from Joe Dolce? I actually got an email afterwards from Jeff to Mike at 570news.com. Please make that song, shut up of your face, your new theme song, or a lead-in to a talk back segment. I love it. Jeff, appreciate that. Shot Up Your Face by Joe Dolce. No surprise at all, a one-hit wonder from back in 1981. Uh, went to number one on the charts and ended up going number one in 11 different countries. It sold 4 million copies as it was translated into multiple languages. Maybe we'll play a little bit of it later on. Let's go back to the phones, though, for the talk back hour. Tom, good afternoon. Hi, good afternoon. How are you, Mike? I'm fine, thank you, sir. Uh, yesterday on the other uh, half of your show, uh, not your show, the other... Uh, now um, you know with Rob Snow. Rob Snow. Yes, okay. sir. His uh, number one was uh, of health. What can we do? Well, first, uh, in Ontario, you can get rid of Doug Ford. Cause he's cleaning. Now, if you want to uh, uh, remove the wait time, it's... KW or St. Mary's, just hire another doctor instead of just the one doctor per hospital. Like when I was there a couple of times, they said the biggest problem is they asked for an extra doctor and they wouldn't give him, Ford wouldn't give him more. Do you think one doctor is the answer to the problem? One uh, doctor? It would, it would uh, cut the wait time by half. Like just the one is not good enough at the volume that they're doing. So you do the other, and then you won't keep the ambulances waiting. So that's for an immediate uh, problem in solving some of the waiting times. Okay. All right. And don't let anybody privatize anything. Sounds good, Tom. Well, it's you know, if 30% goes to profit, Eventually, it'll catch up to you. And there's a pressure, like uh, Ford is sitting on $8 billion that's supposed to be invested in the hospital, and nothing is happening. So. Tom, appreciate the call. Get rid of Doug Ford, hire one more doctor, and don't privatize anything. Those are the cures to what ails us in the healthcare system. Nate Dog. Wow, it's been a while since I've seen that name on my screen. Hey, buddy, how are you? I'm doing pretty good. Uh, I just wanted to rewind back to the Stephen King. Your lines were pretty uh, jammed up there. Well, you tell, I tell you what, we find the right topic, and we do get jammed lines, don't we? <laughs> yes, you do. Uh, okay, so three-pointer. Uh, best movie would be Shawshank Redemption, hands down, masterpiece. Worst Stephen King movie had, to, for me, be Sleepwalkers. I don't know if you ever recall that one. It was like a vampire cat people I kind of movie. Don't re- I don't recall that one. No. Oh, it was horrible. They had there was incest <laughs> in there, and there was a guy that gets killed with a piece of corn on the cob. I'm just like, no. Well, that's uh, creative. Fun fact: uh, you can actually make a Stephen King film for one dollar. It's a it's called a Dollar Baby film that he sponsors. Really? Yeah, you pay him a dollar, he gives you the rights, but you are not allowed to profit one red cent off of it. And I know that because 11 years ago, me and my friends in Guelph made one. Did you really? Yeah, it was based on the short story Nona. And we called it Love Never Dies. There you go. pretty decent. Where can we find it? Is it on YouTube somewhere? Uh, I just tried looking for it. I don't even think they can put it up on YouTube because you can make monetary value on YouTube. Right. 
Um, I will try to find the link and send it along to you. All right, buddy. All right. Thanks for the call. Nice to hear from you. Stephen King sparked some interest today. Uh, Eric, good afternoon. You're on the 12 o'clock talk back. Morning. How are you doing there, Mike? Just fine, thank you. How are you? I'm okay. A little bit down today. I, uh, I'm, I'm going to be talking a little bit about compassion in the uh, in the uh, medical industry. So, sure. Uh, I was essentially uh, denied caregiver uh, for my mom, who had just hurt herself to everything. She broke her clavicle, her shoulder, and bruised her side and broke her orbital bone. She can't really take care of herself. But because the doctor on the form for the caregiver put, no, this is not a life-threatening injury, I've been denied caregiver benefits because the doctor put no. I asked Service Canada, I said, what's going on? They said, well, even though she needs 24-hour care, the algorithm in the stupid computer, because you put no, it's not a life-threatening injury, you're going to automatically be denied caregiver benefits. How is that? good. And I just got off the phone with the doctor who refuses to change his answer because it's not a life-threatening injury. I can't pay my bills. I can't go to work. Like, how, how is that a compassion towards the, the needy? Like, truly, I have to go an hour and a half away from where I work to care for my mom. I cannot get to work. I love you, Mike. You have a great day, buddy. Thanks, Eric. Appreciate the call. That is the definition of rock and hard place. And it again suggests to me that you're in the gap that's between that rock and that hard place. Of course you're going to care for your ailing and elderly parent. 90 minutes away and then unable to work but unable to access any benefits. Home care, anyone comes up a lot when we talk about health care generally. It's a curious one as to why such care would not be available to your average Ontarian. Thanks for sharing the story, Eric. We'll take a quick break, come back and continue with the 12 o'clock talk back hour. This is the Mike Farwell Show on City News 570. We are in the midst of our 12 o'clock talkback hour, your daily opportunity to reach out and talk to someone. 519-570-2545, star 570-1800-570-5715. No shortage of issues in the news today. What's on your mind? Sophia, good afternoon. Yes, good afternoon. Hi. I have been in hospital December, uh, emergency, uh, St. Mary's Hospital. Uh, for me, was the best time what I have. I never actually been before in hospital. I've been six hours. Make me uh, lots of tests, uh, x-ray, two times seen doctor. Uh, I was so excited. Yes, been so many people so have little problem, but they came and go fast. I've been longer because I have lots of many kind of uh, tests. And I was so happy, so they uh, make 
very well. This time, I don't understand all the time people criticize what is wrong in hospital. Maybe one day, maybe I was a lucky day, so not been, uh, but I don't know. I I am so grateful. Thank you, St. Mary's Hospital. You are the best. Thank you, Sophia. I appreciate that. Thank you, St. Mary's Hospital. You are the best. You know, it occurs to me. So we have heard these awful stories, right? Emergency rooms that close on weekends. And I've seen that for myself. Uh, Where was I? Michael, don't open your mouth. And then uh, I was up Wellington County, not quite Arthur. Ah, sugar. Anyway, I I was out on the motorcycle over the summer and there was a sign outside the hospital that said emergency room hours this weekend. And it it showed the hours that the emergency room would not be open. I feel awful for forgetting. I can even see the juncture of anyway. doesn't matter. It's not far from here. I was on a little motorcycle tour. Boom. So we hear those stories, right? We, We hear that 2 million Ontarians do not have a family doctor. We hear of these extraordinary wait times. And yet... When we bring it up on the show for discussion, we keep getting stories like Sophia's. I was in the hospital and the care was great. And she said six hours, but lots of tests that had to be done. There were other people who came in with more minor concerns and they were in and out more quickly. So for Sophia, her experience was terrific and she can't thank St. Mary's Hospital enough. Earlier today when we did talk about it, it was on the heels of a report from the Ontario Health Coalition that basically says... The Ford government is robbing the public system to pay for a private system. And we had a call from a gentleman whose name escapes me right now, and I'm sorry for that, but also talked about the terrific care he received when admitted to Grand River Hospital. Yes, he was in a hallway for a moment, but he couldn't have been more comfortable, couldn't have been better cared for. And his takeaway was, gosh, those nurses are working hard. No grass growing under those feet. So... I, it's interesting that we we read about all of these stories. We hear the data that says the average wait time is this, that, or the other thing. And yet, we continue, at least on this show, to get stories like Sophia's and the story that we got from that other gentleman earlier today. They can't speak highly enough of their experience with our healthcare system and specifically the experience here in our local hospitals. Go figure. Uh, that's just an observation on the conversations we've had. Mark, 12 o'clock talk back. Good afternoon. Hi again, Farzi. Hey, Mark. I got a suggestion for you, Mike. <laughs> oh, this great. is on, on is the it, lighter side. Is it, oh, okay. Lighter. I thought you were going to be constructively uh, critical. No. Okay. What do you got for me? Um, you do the flip side every week. Every Thursday morning, 1130, the flip side. I really like that song this morning. It made me laugh. Oh, the uh, Joe Dolce song. You got it. Okay. So why don't you do uh, One Hit Wonders Band, see what everybody comes up with. That would not be bad, Mark. That would not be bad at all. Okay, that's all, Farzi. Okay, buddy. Okay. Thanks. Have a great day. (laughs) As I mentioned earlier, Jeff sent an email. This was, surprisingly, I say sarcastically, a One Hit Wonder for Joe Dolce back in 1981. Special for you. Ready? Uno, two, three, cuatro. When I was. 
was a boy, just the part that ate the grade. Mama used to say, don't stay out the late with the bad boys. Always shoot the pool, Giuseppe going to flunk a school. Boy, it make me sick, all the thing I gotta do. I can't get no kicks, I always got to follow rules. Boy, it make me sick, just to make the lousy bucks. Got to feel like a fool. And the mama used to say all the time, What's the matter to you? Hey, got no respect. What do you think you do? Why you look so sad? It's a not so bad. It's a nicer place. Ah, shut up your face. That's my mama. Can I remember? Big accordion solo. Can we still play that in 2024? In 1981, it was a number one hit. What's the matter, you? Hey, gotta know respect. Hey, what do you think you do? Why you look so sad? Shut up your face, sang Joe Dolce more than 40 years ago. This is your 12 o'clock talk back hour on the Mike Farwell Show. City News 570. Just about to turn the controls over to Rob Snow. Now you know for the next couple of hours before I do that for that lucky so-and-so. We finish up with our 12 o'clock talkback hour. Robert, the final 60 seconds belong to you. Thank you very much, Mike. I wanted to give you the flip side of the coin. Sadly, you said nobody calls in talking about the health care. Twice at Cambridge Memorial Hospital, unfortunately, I needed help over the last six months. Both weights, just over eight hours to get in to see a doctor. Yeah, I was the up. second time, I literally walked out the door without seeing a doctor. And the first time, don't fall over laughing, they were short-staffed, so they asked my wife to assist. Do you have a family doctor, out of curiosity? Yes, I do. Okay. All right. Thank God. <laughs> Whoops, I'm sorry, because I, I got to run. But uh, thanks for sharing the, that flip side of that, because I, I just had mentioned, however, anecdotally, when we talk about healthcare, we tend to get, especially from our callers, just glowing reports of the care that folks have received. And I, I hope that once you did get the care, despite the long wait, Robert, you also were tended to in a most professional manner. I suspect that would be the case. As I mentioned, now you know with Rob Snow is coming up from 1 until 3, then all news afternoons. As I look ahead at our show tomorrow, Council Chambers continues. The Mayor of Waterloo will join us to talk about all things Waterloo. Our weekly living retired humor columnist joins us on the air. Our Friday Four Roundtable, The Coaches Show, and so much more on the way tomorrow. Devin Robertson is the guy on the other side of the glass. My name is Mike Farwell. Bye for now.